Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. This installment is about the article, Informatics Primer, Demystifying Artificial Intelligence in Pharmacy. The two authors in this conversation are Dr. Scott Nelson, a pharmacist, and Dr. Colin Walsh, a physician, both with the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Nashville, Tennessee. Scott, let me start with you. Could you give us an overview of the Biomedical Informatics Department at Vanderbilt? Sure, I'd love to. The Department of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt is the largest academic informatics department in the country. We have over 75 faculty there with over 400 staff dedicated to our health information system needs. Uh, we also have the largest NIH-funded informatics training program in the country, as well as an online Master's of Science in Applied Clinical Informatics program that's really geared towards working healthcare professionals, such as pharmacists and physicians, nurses, and so on. Uh, we also do have a PGY2 in informatics as part of the pharmacy informatics team in health IT. And our department overall, I would say, is very applied. Um, we have a lot of projects and priorities, including precision medicine, pharmacogenomics, clinical decision support, patient engagement, as well as a lot of other projects in translational research and bioinformatics. Uh, with that many faculty, really, we have a lot of different projects going on. Yes, well, it's quite impressive. Colin, uh, could you uh, say for the benefit of listeners, uh, what is the definition of artificial intelligence that guided the writing of your AJHP primer? Yes, most broadly, artificial intelligence is the discipline focused on teaching machines to simulate or imitate intelligence. In the space of healthcare, we generally refer to human intelligence as the intelligence we'd like to, to emulate when it comes to AI. It's important to remember that artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. We're talking back to the 1950s, so decades of discipline and science in that space. And it's a discipline that is not new, but what's new is the amount of attention and interest in artificial intelligence in healthcare and specifically in pharmacy. Uh, there's a few reasons for that that are worth noting. One, we have um, unprecedented amounts of data that are available for artificial intelligence focused applications. We have a willingness for individuals across various disciplines to collaborate around hard problems that are data driven. And finally, we have access to tools that are democratized in ways that has never before been possible. Readers of AJHP, for example, can go on their laptops today and download software for free to run sophisticated machine learning algorithms on data they may already have. So that's really unprecedented. Within artificial intelligence, there are some distinctions that are particularly important, and I'll focus on one in particular. When we walk into a movie or we read a book about AI, we're typically thinking about strong or what's called general artificial intelligence. But the reality is most AI applications in the real world are narrow or weak, and I'll explain that difference. So when we go to a movie about AI, we're generally seeing an AI that can think and act as humans might. 
The classic example attributed to Steve Wozniak of Apple is, you know, an, an artificial general intelligence could walk into your house and learn how to make coffee. The vast reality in biomedicine and certainly in pharmacy is the majority of those applications are actually narrow or weak. That means we're solving a specific problem, even if it's very sophisticated or elegant in its execution. And the examples such as Alexa and Siri, things we take for granted on our phones, while elegant and very sophisticated, are still examples of narrow, applied, or weak AI. I wanted to mention one more distinction, and my, my colleague Scott Nelson can speak to it a little further, is we also introduced this idea of augmented intelligence. Yes, and augmented intelligence, I think, is a, a more healthy term for AI, and it really goes back to the fundamental theorem of informatics, and that the person plus the computer is better than either one in, alone. And really, these advances that we see in technology and and artificial intelligence and machine learning are not here to replace our jobs, but they are here to help us do our jobs faster and easier. And the really cool part is that I'm even very hopeful that it will help free up more time for us to fulfill our clinical responsibilities and have more patient interactions. Mm -hmm. You know, as a novice with respect to the field of informatics, I found it interesting that you state the goals of your paper in rather practical terms, although you drill down with some depth into the terminology and methods of AI development. Scott, what are you hoping to achieve with the paper with respect to the pharmacist reader who is not an informatics specialist? Yeah, great question. I would say with our paper, our goal was really to try to make this as approachable and easy to understand as possible without a technical background. We really want for every pharmacist to be able to read the paper and walk away with a basic understanding of what is AI, some of the terminology and definitions used in it, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses, and especially how they could critically evaluate AI models and claims. Um, Ideally, we would like to have pharmacists and help pharmacists identify problems or challenges in their workplace that could benefit from AI, and then be able to communicate with uh, data scientists and the informatics team to come up with innovative new applications of AI. As such, this paper, it has a lot of descriptions and examples of AI in healthcare so that we could better convey the definitions that we're providing. And there's also some figures to help visualize exactly what it is that's being described. Okay. Colin, uh, you make a distinction in this article between two components of AI, expert systems and machine learning. Could you explain that? The difference between expert systems and machine learning is relevant uh, not just to this paper, but to many problems in, in healthcare. And I'll start with expert systems, though I'll note that our paper does focus on machine learning. Expert systems have been around um, for decades, going back into, for example, the 1970s, as far as diagnostic expert systems to help us make decisions. And that's really what makes expert systems what they are. They're intended to emulate human decision-making. As a result of that, we call them typically systems that are knowledge-based and rule-based. The idea being if we can break apart the decision we might make in our everyday lives into a set of rules, and a set of ideas that we need to follow. And following that path of rules is how an expert system might help us arrive at a conclusion, a decision. 
good things about expert systems are because they're curated, because they rely on knowledge we already have, they tend to be relatively interpretable, which is an important concept, and frankly explainable, which is another important concept in AI today. And there, so if you open up the hood, you can usually figure out how a system arrived at a conclusion. Um, and the great example that I mentioned from the 1970s is a system called Internist One, which is a diagnostic knowledge-based tool. The downside of expert systems, the challenge with them, is it takes an extraordinary amount of work to curate and refine the rules and the knowledge base that's required to make those decisions, which means maintaining these systems while we're getting more and more data in ever-changing and rapidly changing environments in healthcare is very, very difficult. So they're very hard to maintain and they're hard to keep current. Machine learning, on the other hand, is really predicated in the idea that we can teach machines to see patterns in abundant and complex data sets. These can be based in statistical methods and things called Bayesian methods, for example, and things called frequentist methods and various algorithms, which I won't go into. But machine learning is focused. If we give a complex data set to a machine learning algorithm and we give it an example of something called a supervised learning problem, where we think we know what the outcome is and we want the machine to figure out how to find that outcome, the machine sifts through the data and discovers patterns that may or may not be apparent to the human who's sifting through the same data set. The algorithm can see those patterns that may not be interpretable. And that's a trade-off. It's what's often called that black box problem, where the model might work very, very well, but how it gets to its conclusion can be increasingly difficult. There are many examples of machine learning in the, in the biomedical literature, and those are rapidly increasing, partly because they can be developed relatively quickly compared to expert systems. And also, once they're developed, they can be maintained through computational means. So they're easier to curate, and they're easier to administer over time. But both systems do have trade-offs. I see. Well, Scott, uh, can you give us a sense of the key considerations in deciding whether a particular problem in the medication use process is a good candidate for a machine learning application? Sure. This is something that we describe more in depth in the primer. Um, but I think one of the most important things is to define what is the task that we're trying to accomplish. So, for example, are we trying to estimate the probability of a yes or no label? Are we trying to estimate a continuous value? Or are we trying to find patterns in the data? And then how accurately do we need to predict these patterns to make it clinically useful? And then we can ask, is this something that a human could do if they had sufficient time and data available, would they be able to do this task? If not, then the computer is unlikely to be able to do it either. Uh, then the models are only really as good as the data that feeds them. So we need to ask if we have access to the data, how much data we have, are they available at an appropriate time in the workflow for what we're considering? One example of that would be like diagnostic codes or sometimes assigned at the end of an encounter and therefore probably wouldn't be too terribly useful for like an ED admission for um, early in the encounter. So we want to try to make sure that we have the appropriate amount of data at the right time that could then be useful for the decisions that we're trying to make or the events that we're trying to predict. Scott, can you give us some examples of well-established applications of, of machine learning related to the medication use process? Yeah, there's a lot of really cool examples out there, and 
we provide some of them in the primer. If you look at the, the news and current literature, there's always expanding examples of this. So specific to like the medication use process though, there's some really cool work that's been done with predicting acute kidney injury, uh, drug diversion pattern detection and identification. So trying to pull out some of those patterns that the computer sees in the data to hopefully identify drug diversion. Uh, there's some tools that predict orders so that they can actually be used to detect potential errors in ordering. There's adverse drug event detection, uh, medication information that's in context and easier to read and understand, et cetera. There's also a lot of work currently going on with drug discovery and drug repurposing. Colin, if we look ahead, uh, say over the next five or 10 years, are there some uh, impactful applications that you see on the horizon, again, with respect to the medication use process? With respect to medication use over the next five to 10 years, I think we'll see both an expansion of some proven use cases for artificial intelligence in pharmacy uh, science, as well as the opportunity for some truly novel ideas as well. So for example, what might expand? The area of pharmacogenomics is incredibly rich and incredibly interesting. And, and Vanderbilt, for example, has a program called PREDICT, which currently today is helping providers make decisions about anticoagulant choices, which blood thinner might be the best fit for a particular patient. And it does that by analyzing that patient's genetic profile to see whether they're going to metabolize one particular drug differently than another. I think there's incredible room for that to expand, and not just in genomics, but beyond into other types of omics, metabolomics and proteomics and so on. The idea that we can learn more and more in, the, in an area known as precision medicine about an individual patient based on a sample sent to a biobank that can then be used to directly inform medication use choices. As a primary care doctor myself, and part of my time, I get particularly excited about that idea. Um, we heard a little bit about the idea around uh, drug discovery and drug repurposing, and I think that will continue ex to expand. Even today, we're seeing efforts like crowdsourcing, almost emulating a, a, how a video game might look, where individuals can interact with, with uh, drug molecules and proteins to try to see whether there's new uses or new receptors that might be modeled according to, to, according to those drugs. I think as our systems get more sophisticated and as our data sets get larger and larger, I think the opportunities for that to expand also continue to grow. Uh, a particularly interesting area that I don't think we've mentioned before is the area of drug-drug interactions and the potential for harms. You know, we do, um, you know, the pharmacy community has extraordinary expertise in how carefully we evaluate drugs before they're used or given to, to humans. But certainly what we're seeing and what will, what will continue to happen over the next five to 10 years for surveillance, to watch for drug interactions, to watch for aftermarket effects of drugs, to leverage communities of people you know, for example, in patient portals or in online communities and patients like me, for example, where individuals share their reactions from medications. And as that links to larger data sets and in some cases, electronic health records, the opportunity for us to more quickly find aftermarket effects of novel drugs is unprecedented. Finally, the last example I give relates to automation. The idea that routine medication use processes might be streamlined and automated in a safe and efficient fashion to give all of us a little more time back in our day, but to do that in a way that's both safe and effective is particularly exciting to me. Scott, do you have something to add on this point, looking ahead for the next five or 10 years? Yeah, I would totally agree with Colin on these. A couple of things that come to mind for me are kind of like what Colin was saying with drug-drug interactions. I think medication alerting and clinical decision support 
could use a lot of advancement from artificial intelligence and really identifying what are those interactions or problems that are going to be a problem for this specific patient. And that way we can really reduce the alert noise that we see and help uh, reduce alert fatigue. Kind of along the same lines, there is a lot of information now being shared between systems, external information from here and there. And all this information coming together could easily cause information overload for our clinicians. And I think there's opportunities for artificial intelligence to find signals in the data. What are the relevant key pieces that we need to pull out and display to the pharmacist or to um, the physician? I think there's lots of opportunities for inventory management, uh, continued expansion and drug diversion identification, and also along these lines of advances in drug discovery and repurposing, we're already seeing a lot of expansion in that space, and I would say that it's going to just expand even more. One of the areas of that that's really exciting to me is the immunization development, similar, uh, really kind of emphasized from the COVID-19 epidemic that we have going on right now. There's been a lot of artificial intelligence algorithms to identify candidate drugs to treat the disease. There's, there have also been a lot of AI tools that help with identifying the different immunogenic components of the virus that could make for a good vaccine candidate. And so they'll use tools um, and models like the uh, Maria model that uses deep learning neural networks to predict how likely a peptide would be presented by an HLA-2 complex on a cell surface. And that way, we can have better predictions for what pieces of this virus are going to be candidates for a vaccine and what proteins are likely to bind and cause an immune response, which is something really cool, not only for uh, the coronavirus, but even for improving flu vaccines from year to year as the flu virus continues to change. You know, I'm interested in um, sort of the real world development of machine learning applications related to pharmacy and the medication use process. Uh, where is this happening? Is it uh, primarily academic centers such as yours, uh, commercial enterprises? I'm curious about source of funding for all this work. Colin, could you comment on that? Uh, yes, we so we do have experience, um, certainly in my lab and definitely at Vanderbilt, with respect to one translating novel discoveries that sometimes come out of research, for example, even into operations. So making them a real-world operational tool, that is actually a challenging transition, even at one center, one academic center that's devoted to the mission of improving healthcare. So, for example, as, as my colleague mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, technology alone doesn't make the difference. It's people and process linked to technology that actually has clinical impact. So we can do great research on technology alone, but we can't do great operational change if we don't pay attention to the people and process part of the problems we're trying to solve. And even within one institution, going from a research setting into a real-world development setting requires great collaboration, and really importantly, it requires championship. 
and that's different than research. And I think that, that those, those facets are true, whether you're talking about a commercial enterprise or you're talking about an academic medical center. What's different in those domains is that the timeline for development can be quite different. The mission, in, in some cases, can be quite different. In an academic center, for example, we're not necessarily uh, developing a, a new drug to implement into a process and then license that drug out. That could be an example of something we're doing. Sometimes we're optimizing the process around how we administer that drug on the, on the, at the point of care, on the front line. Um, and a commercial enterprise, their mission might be somewhat different. And what part of the pipeline of development data might also be somewhat different. So where the sources of funding come from that support that work can really, can really vary quite a lot. So, for example, there may be a research and development budget. There may be a fund that can source that kind of work in a commercial enterprise. In an academic medical center, it might be quite different. You know, we spend a lot of our time trying to get grant money, for example, and scientific grant support. And while grants will fund the study of an implementation of, let's say, an AI-driven medication use process, it's pretty unlikely that those same grants will fund the implementation of those medication novel use processes. So what that means is we need to be very smart and very strategic about how we support, one, the build, and then we try to get that support. Typically, we're more likely to get it from, let's say, a scientific grant to do the evaluation and perhaps run what we might call a pragmatic trial, a real-world effectiveness trial. So all this to say, if our interest is in developing AI-driven applications to affect medication use, with real-world applications, it is never too early to understand what that real-world application might be. The choices we make in the product design and the choices we make in the scientific study, the choices we make throughout the, throughout the pipeline, frankly, will depend quite greatly on what that real-world setting looks like. So spend the time up front focusing on what the output might eventually be in maybe years and millions of dollars down the line. Mm -hmm. Well, uh... In this time of novel coronavirus pandemic, we often hear references to various models that are being used to make predictions about the course of the pandemic. I assume those models are AI applications. Colin, can you comment on the challenges related to making such predictions? I can comment on a few of the challenges related to attempting to make predictions during the era of the coronavirus pandemic. I think it's safe to say this is one of the most challenging, if not most challenging times to attempt to build models that are informative and effective, frankly, in making decisions when the data are changing day to day and sometimes minute to minute. So an example of some of the challenges actually starts right at the very beginning of when this pandemic really started to change healthcare in our country. And this probably applies in other countries as well. Remember that many hospitals and many of our states, as we initially started to respond to the pandemic with, with self-isolation and in some cases quarantine, Healthcare utilization dropped dramatically. That alone changes the baseline data. It changes the processes by which a lot of the models that might even already have been in use, it changes the data that those models see. So the, the, essentially imagine that the floor beneath us starts to shift, and that's based on models we're already using. Now we had the challenge of building a new model. When the data, quality issues around the data, we spend 80 plus percent of our time cleaning data to develop a novel algorithm. That takes an extraordinary amount of time. Now to imagine doing that during a pandemic where the data quality can vary depending on who's reporting it, the scale of that, those data vary quite a lot, the silos that are natural, that healthcare systems have their own natural silos in some cases around data, the, the fact that we don't have broad exchange of healthcare data in our country, 
all of those problems become extraordinary challenges. And the last challenge I'll highlight is the fact that, you know, as, as, as a, my colleague mentioned, as we've talked at other points in this conversation, we often have the data we have at our fingertips to develop an AI-driven application, but we don't always have the data we need. And especially when it comes to coronavirus, the data we need are frequently outside the systems that we have our hands around. For example, in an academic medical center, data around policies, data around decisions for businesses, data around schools, data around where people are spending their time and behavior, data around contact tracing, all of those challenges make it a really difficult proposition to develop effective, real-time, up-to-date models for coronavirus during this pandemic. Indeed, quite a challenge. Well, as we draw our conversation to a close, uh, Scott, are there any additional thoughts about your article that you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah, one of the things that I would just like to emphasize again is the importance that pharmacists and pharmacy technicians even have as medication use domain experts. They really play a critical role in developing, evaluating, and implementing AI in healthcare. And an understanding of the core concepts of AI and machine learning that we outline in this primer are really necessary to engage in collaboration with the data scientists and the informatics teams to critically evaluate a model's place in patient care and to solve real-world problems that we are all facing. It's just so important that uh, pharmacists across the spectrum really understand the, these changes in our healthcare system and in technology and how we can all work together to improve our system. Well, Scott and Colin, thank you so much for having this conversation with me about your very intriguing and important paper on demystifying artificial intelligence in pharmacy. This is William Zelmer. I've been speaking with Dr. Scott Nelson and Dr. Colin Walsh of Vanderbilt University about their primer on demystifying artificial intelligence in pharmacy. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.